0: Hi, I'm Patrick McBriarty. And I'm Christopher
1: Lynch. And
0: together, we are the hosts of Windy City
1: Historians. We will share and discuss Chicago history.
0: And some great Chicago stories. Sponsored by Rapunzel. R-A-P-U-N-Z-L. No E. Created by two high school friends toward improving financial literacy Offering simulated financial trading competitions and scholarships. Check out their mobile app and interviews of Miles and Brian in the press. R A P U N Z L.
1: Welcome to the Windy City Historians Podcast, Episode 12, Part Two
0: The First Star. So, Chris, we're back with Part Two of our interview with Anne Durk and Keating.
1: This is the episode in which all the f- factors that excuse the pun that have been bubbling, yeah, come together with the Fort Dearborn battle or massacre.
0: Yeah. If you've listened to the last episode, which was episode 11, The First Star, we do all the lead up into this attack that we're going to describe coming up. And I was ready to start in April with the attack on Lee's farm in Hardscrabble, which Which, is now current Bridgeport.
1: Bridgeport, right.
0: Yeah. And she wanted a little more runway, as you recall, and wanted to go back to Tippecanoe. Yes. And the Battle of Tippecanoe in November of 1811.
1: Yes. And coincidentally, I was at Tippecanoe Battlefield just a couple days ago. Oh, wow. And I wanted to give you a gift,
0: Patrick. Oh, thanks, Chris. Oh, look at this. <laughs> this is great. So, there's a like a sharpshooter's rifle okay. with a pen at the end of it. Yes. So, I have now a Battle of Tippecanoe rifle pen.
1: And check out the back.
0: Oh, nice. And there's a whole description on the back.
1: Well, this was really neat. First of all, it's about an hour and a half. Two hours from Chicago, right off of I 65 if you're driving near Purdue University.
0: So south of Chicago, yep.
1: If you go to Gary and you, and you kind of go straight down. Okay. What's neat about it is it's on the Wabash River, and that's where Prophetstown was. Yes. Or, or Prophet Town, which you can also visit.
0: Tenskwatawa, who is also known as the Shawnee Prophet or the Prophet. And his
1: brother Tecumseh. Yes. Now, I went on a rainy day. And consequently, it was just easier to go to the Battlefield Museum there. Sure. And we walked in, and they have a great presentation. They have these cool dioramas that show you where Harrison was, where the Indians were, where the different militias divisions were. Yeah. And there was, I think there were some yellow jackets there. They were like an Indiana militia, and they're all in their yellow outfits. Oh, interesting. and, And what's neat is... The actual monument, which is humongous, this obelisk, I don't know how tall it is, but this thing that is dedicated to the battle and to Harrison, the grounds on which this monument is, is the battlefield. So you can go look at the dioramas, then you can walk around and they have little markers saying this is where the Indiana militia was. This is where Tecumseh's troops came in from the swamp.
0: Right, because it was a pretty swampy area. By the way,
1: it still is.
0: Yeah. William Henry Harrison picked some high ground that seemed like it'd be reasonable yeah. to defend. They camped for the night. And then early in the morning before dawn, the Indians, encouraged by the prophet, by it's Tenskwatawa, attacked. I think it was 3 in the morning. Attacked. Was it, that sounds... Yeah,
1: I think it was 3 in the morning. They came from the northeast, I believe. Yeah. And it was very startling. I just imagine. I mean, I'm sure there was no moon or It was November. You know how yeah. gray November can be. And the battle lasted about two hours, which that's a lot of scrambling in the dark. Oh, yeah. And then militia, Harrison's troops pushed the Indians into the swamp. And you can see where they went. And it's there's the swamp. Yeah. And again, their Wabash River is not too far. You have to cross it to get there.
0: So it was really,
1: really cool. And...
0: Well, you could probably really envision the battle and have a oh, sense yeah. of musket fire and he's screaming and yelling, tomahawks flying, and
1: oh yeah, definitely. Yeah, you can
0: see they have terrorizing.
1: They have some weapons from 1811 in the museum.
0: Sure, that are period pieces. Some of the war clubs and some of the hatchets and
1: right. And the the gentleman that was running the museum, I am. He was very very interesting. We were talking, and I happened to mention I was from Chicago. And he said to me, have you read Rising Up from Indian Country by Ann Durkin Keating? And I said,
0: yes, I have. (laughs) As have I. And
1: then he said, it's a great book. He says, we have it here in our gift shop. Yeah. So I bought it because my copy is all dog-eared from going through it. But I was delighted to talk to him about it. He brought it up. Yeah. For the record, he brought it up. And it was regarding Fort Dearborn because I had mentioned Fort Dearborn, so he knew the connection that this was the fuse that started the dominoes, I should say,
0: that led to that led
1: to Fort Dearborn. Sure, on August fifteenth, eighteen twelve. So,
0: I'm you, sure, I'm sure Dr. Keating will appreciate the unsolicited nod to her book prior to the Juliet Kinsey book that he, she just did.
1: Also, they had. Mr. Jefferson's Hammer, the book we also discussed. In right, the, in that you told shop. me
0: about, and I, I need to pick a copy of that up.
1: Yeah. So anyway, it was great. I really enjoyed it. And the gentleman I was talking with also told me that William Wells's brother was at Tippecanoe.
0: Oh, he, so Samuel Wells was there.
1: He fought at the battle. Interesting, okay. And there's some descendants in Indiana that trace their roots to people that fought in that battle. The gentleman was well aware of the William Wells connection at Fort Dearborn. Yeah. Because, again, it's all related, Patrick. As, sure. As we learned from Andrew and it's all
0: related. So these things these all overlap.
1: Frontier wars.
0: Absolutely. And in the previous episode, episode 11, The First Star, which, again, is a reference to the first star on the Chicago flag, mm-hmm. we um, go from Tippecanoe and that battle in November of 1811 then we come to Chicago, where Captain Heald is in charge. Then we have the attack in April at Hardscrabble. And then there's the dust-up with Irwin, who's ratting out Kinsey about the sutlering business and not happy with the way the officers are working with him, feeling like he's got some kind of control over Captain Heald and his subalterns.
1: So there's some his, internal strife within the fort.
0: As usual, as you pointed out, how— Irwin just can't seem to let it go.
1: Yeah, kind of, kind of
0: a jerk. East Coast dandy on June 9th, 17th. John Kinsey kills Jean Laleem. And then the Secretary of War writes to Captain Heald that it arrives on the 22nd of June, Okay, saying that Irwin has been making complaints against the officers. Tw- and, he's, tw- and Irwin, he's kicked out of the fort because he'd been bunking for a few days with the surgeon's mate, okay. Isaac Borges, Van Voorhees. Van Voorhees. Yep. And then he decides that he's going to leave Chicago and find an interpreter because John Nalim has been killed, and he goes up to Mackinac on Friends Goodwill on July 5th. And so then we go back to Andrew and Keating in this interview that'll take us through the rest of the battle and the War of 1812.
1: And just, again, to stress this point, it's a really stressful time in the... Indian country. This is the Indians' revenge on what happened at Tippecanoe.
0: Right, as the British also add to this agitation of the Indians, along with Tecumseh and his alliance getting ready to attack the Americans. So all these
1: forces are moving based on what happened at Tippecanoe November seventh,
0: eighteen eleven. So let's go back to Ann and Keating.
1: <laughs> <City's historians. laughs>
2: So in July, Kinsey is in Peoria.
0: Forsyth comes to Chicago and assures Captain Heald that Kinsey and Forsythe can continue to be contractors and settlers to the port
2: Because there is a rival that has emerged. John Burnett, the son of William Burnett, the guy that actually bought the Kinsey property from Point du Sable yes. has come in and he, he says, I can beat the sutler and I will provide American goods rather than British goods. And Heald is like, no, we're going to stick with, Foresight's going to be able and to do this for And I think they are going to partner with
0: Lee, weren't they? Yes. With James Lee. Yes. Yeah. I the, mean, that's the biggest contract in Chicago. So if it's open, you're going for it. Right. right?
2: And they, they come in and do that. Yeah. And in fact, Burnett's going to marry Lalim's widow. widow. Yeah. yeah. To make that connection. And they have a son. Right, who's going to gonna to be compensated in the end for some of the losses that took place. Later. Yeah, in this.
0: Hailed is in a pinch because he's there at the fort. He doesn't have a good interpreter.
2: Kinsey and Laleem were the ones who had the deep knowledge of the Native Americans in the area.
0: One of the Metis sons is doing some interpreting for him, but they don't have the connections out into right. the tribes to know right. disposition and sure. that kind of thing.
2: With Laleem gone...
0: Laleem gets murdered in front of Fort Dearborn.
2: By Kinsey. So he basically decides he needs Kinsey in place right. and you the connections to right. So it just mattered a great deal.
0: War had been declared. Was it June 29th?
2: Yeah, so by July 1st, we've got a war declaration between the U.S. and Great Britain.
0: And then Chicago finds out about that probably just a week or so before... The order from Hull comes through. So they know that they're in a state of war as well.
2: Right. So the war is there. So that's a piece of this. Captain
0: Heald issues a garrison order saying Kinsey is allowed to come back to Chicago unmolested until civil authorities take him up. Right. But there are no civil authorities. Right. So it would mean either Harrison or Nina Edwards or somebody that they send to to take him up. Right.
2: Right. Right. So Heald has basically said, it's not my problem. Heald says, come on back.
0: All is forgiven for now.
2: Well, yeah, I mean, for the moment. Kinsey comes back from Peoria to Chicago. Mm-hmm. And then Kinsey is asked to lead a group of Native American leaders.
0: Tribal chiefs in the area.
2: That's going to go to Pequa, Ohio.
0: For a pro-American Indian council. Yeah. John Johnson, who used to be at Fort Wayne as right. the Indian agent, is now at Pequa, kind of near Toledo, northwest Ohio and they're having a big Indian council that was supposed to start August 1st but it gets pushed back to August 15th.
1: Huh.
0: And so Kinsey's the only one that can do that because Laleem's dead. Yeah. So he's got to have Kinsey back.
2: Right. Sure. And he sends him out. So it's not like he's going to be there. So he's on his way out there and if the other piece of this is worth having in mind is that Fort Wayne, that William Wells, who had been the Indian agent at at Fort Wayne, has lost his position. Mm -hmm. So he is an interpreter. So Harrison has continued to employ him as an interpreter, but he is out there. And the fact that Benjamin Stickney is now the Fort Wayne Indian agent is also creating more instability in the region. So it's just one more layer here. And then to make these personal connections, William Wells' niece, Rebecca. Rebecca has married the commander at Fort Dearborn, Nathan Heald. So oh. married just about a year at that point, maybe even not quite a not year. Quite. And Rebecca had, in fact, just lost a child. They had lost a child earlier in the year. But William Wells then has a personal interest in what's going on at Chicago. Because his niece. Because it's his niece, and she lived with him for a period of time in Fort Wayne. So they're close. And
0: remember, Captain Heald was at Fort Wayne prior to Whistler getting transferred to Detroit and Heald to Fort Dearborn.
1: Right.
0: So he had courted her, and apparently they would go shooting. Right. And she was a very good shot. Right. And the two of them would have little competitions, friendly competitions. When he's moved to Chicago and to Fort Dearborn, he's angry because he writes in a letter... Uh, this is maybe fine for a married man right. with a family, right. but right. this is no place that he wants to be and yeah. goes on furlough for, I think, about six months.
2: He's gone a long time.
0: And then eventually goes back to the East Coast and then comes back and stops in Fort Wayne and then I assume gets married, gets
2: married to Rebecca. To Rebecca,
0: And then they come out to return to his post there at Fort Dearborn. right. Wow. Um, so I'm sure William Wells was at the nuptials and... They were familiar with one another. Right.
2: And so he's one more figure. So you've got John Kinsey leading this delegation or accompanying this delegation of mainly Potawatomi warriors and leaders from the area to go to Pequa for this conference. I want
0: to say it's like a party of about 15, yeah. 20 people. Yeah.
2: So it's not an it's a, it's a big group. And, they're, and
0: these are high ranking leaders within the Potawatomi tribes. So
2: so along the way, and they intercept the messenger. The word, yeah, comes through to tell Heald to evacuate the fort.
0: So wait, we should tell though, what is that (laughs) message and where did it come from? Go ahead. Right?
2: No, you do it.
0: So it's General Hull out of Detroit, and he is decided that because Mackinac has fallen, they have no way to support Fort Dearborn because that's done by ship and if you can't get through the straits, then Fort Dearborn's on its own. So he wants to cut his losses, have that garrison go down to Fort Wayne, and sends an order to that effect with this Indian runner, Messenger Winamac, which the street in Chicago is named after. Right. We got Kinsey with the messenger. And so then they find out that Fort Dearborn is supposed to be evacuated.
2: So, so they're going to turn around, and William Wells is also going to hear about all of this.
0: Because my understanding is they sent two messengers, one by way of St. Joseph and one by way of, of
2: for Fort, Fort, Wayne. Fort Wayne. So William Wells decides that he's going to come to Chicago.
0: And so on August 3rd, I know there's a letter that William Wells is aware of the order headed for Fort Dearborn.
2: Right. And so we know that, again, that personal connection is going to send Wells to his niece and to help heal.
0: So all I can assume then is Winnemack would have known that there was a messenger going to Fort Fort Wayne. Wayne. And so when he talks to Kinsey and the other tribal leaders, he would have related that information. And then he goes on not waiting for them to decide what to do because it sounds like they have a little powwow for a day or two. Right. And, and Kinsey's about two days behind Winnemack getting On the to way Fort back. Dearborn. Right. Yeah. That,
2: yeah, that's my sense of how that played out.
0: And supposedly, according to Julia Kinsey, Winnemack and John Kinsey tried to convince Captain Heal to stay in the fort. And so once they can't, Captain Heal and John Kinsey has a council with the natives. And I've always imagined this as maybe a a mistaken gesture, or maybe it's just bad interpretation or something lost in translation, but basically the Potawatomi that are there gathered around the fort knowing that it's gonna be closed, expect to get all the guns and the powder that's left over from the fort and the Indian agency and the factory.
2: The evidence for why they might think that is Fort Wayne, Benjamin Stickney, has in fact delivered Ammunition.
0: Oh, I did not know that.
2: Within the year to Tecumseh. Okay. So it's really, can we talk? canoe? Yeah. I mean, Wells was completely up in arms. Wells is adamant about you cannot turn over Mm -hmm. any ammunition to these uh, warriors because it's too dangerous. Right. The thing you cannot do is arm them. Well, Um, I find
0: it interesting that if Kinsey is his interpreter at that first council... On August 12th, he would have let Captain Heald say that you're going to have the guns and ammunition. But who knows? I mean, he's he might have seen an angle or right. or no harm in it or maybe had made an inside deal with the tribes. That they'd give it back to him or something or he'd buy it back for his pittance. Right. And keep it secure for him to then trade later. I don't right. know.
2: Right. I. It's unfortunate that this is the way this plays out. Right.
0: Right. So... Then William Wells shows up, and of course they're expecting Miami with him, you know, a whole group, and it's only about 26 people. He also brings one soldier, a Jordan. Uh, right. it's, just, it's the gentleman's from last Fort name. From Fort Wayne, right. From Fort Wayne with him. They are sort of their escort back to Fort Wayne.
2: Wells had been an incredibly powerful figure. He'd mm-hmm. been the Indian agent at Fort Wayne. He was the son-in-law of Little Turtle, the Miami yeah. leader. Little Turtle had just died. So there's a couple of things here that are really unfortunate in a way, too, because... Which was
0: like a father figure to William Wells. Right, and
2: Little Turtle is an incredibly powerful figure in the whole 1790s and all the way through that first decade of the 19th century in this region. He's one of the most powerful... Yeah, in and, and, and Miami and then just across the Indians. And he stands in contrast to Tecumseh and Tenskwatawa as someone who really, assimilation isn't the right word, but really a, wanting a middle ground, willing to negotiate with the Americans. But the Miami and Little Turtle have sold away, they've ceded away land mm-hmm. that the Potawatomi in particular are living on. I mean, this is really the way that this gets managed, right, is, and I think we've talked about this already, is that the American government is very smart about breaking up the groups, negotiating a settlement for lands that, to some degree, don't belong to the group that's seeding them away. I mean, belonging is such a problematic term.
0: Especially in Native American It's territory. exactly right.
2: Yeah. So, I mean, there's you can see how the American government gets away with this to well, some degree.
0: Was it the Miami that had most of this land around the southern area of Lake Michigan and the Potawatomi then come in and ask if they can move into some of that land or vice versa? There's some. I want to say something to that degree. Yeah, wrong. I
2: mean, they're all moving. Yeah. I mean, the Miami and the Pottawatomie are newcomers, relative newcomers to this region across the 18th century. So, so like we're talking
0: though about 100 to 200 year right. shift in tribal land.
2: Suffice it to say, many of the Potawatomi blame the Miami Mm -hmm. (laughs) for some of the problems that they've got. So there are splinters there. So as well as the nativism, you've also got this splintering between who was benefited by the Greenville Treaty, who did better in the 1809 Fort Wayne Treaty than others. And so there is an antipathy towards the Miami Mm-hmm. amongst many of the potawatomi particularly the more militant potawatomi so that wells coming into chicago if it had been a year before he would have had a lot more power with little turtle behind him but he doesn't have little turtle behind him and he's no longer got the us government particularly behind him he's been right. demoted everybody knows that so he doesn't yeah. have much power at all but he comes anyways and he becomes yet another lightning yeah, rod Captain in 1812 i mean a letter I, of
0: support when he tries to approach the Secretary of War for being reinstated. Right. Yeah.
2: Yeah. So Wells' presence in Chicago in the days before the evacuation is. It's
0: like nails on a chalkboard. It
2: is. It's just, it's only going to make this worse. For and the Potawatomi. For the Potawatomi, yeah. but also for the troops, the American troops that are there. I mean, well, they're he's are
0: counting on him to maybe bring 100 or more. Miami with him. Who will
2: accompany them back to escort them back to Fort Wayne.
0: And he shows up with like 24, 25. He he just
2: doesn't have much standing at this moment amongst the Miami and the Potawatomi are unhappy with him. So there's just, it's just like, there are moments when it's like, if he hadn't come, would this have been a different story? And there's an argument that Kinsey might have been able to negotiate this a little bit differently than it played out. That's probably wishful thinking, but I don't think Wells might have. Yeah, that's exactly right. If we'd gone back, but then I'm getting in the weeds of the counterfactuals. But the idea that Wells is only adding another layer of problem to this, what's going to take place.
0: They're glad to see him because he's a hero in the eyes of the whites at the fort. But it's disappointing that he doesn't have more troops. Then they try to convince Captain Heald to stay at the fort.
2: They got the supplies right to just hunker down
1: and we talked to others about I think Fort Megs was attacked one time and then
2: Fort Wayne is going to be subsequently in the following month will be yeah, a, okay, and right. they just hunker down and, and My
1: understanding of the Indians, I mean they're not the Germans, you know they'll attack and then they a week and they leave
0: Well That's, they don't have the supplies right.
2: yeah, they don't have, if the supplies aren't coming, then this is it's right. not going to be interesting. and
1: some of the, some of the commanders would, would know that.
0: Yeah. that, that and this is what well the, the British had. didn't have the wherewithal to bring supplies to support a siege and yeah. if they're not there then it's not going to happen uh, and Tecumseh knows this too that's why the coordinated surprise attacks were his plan right and that's always key to Native American approach is a, a surprise attack act like you're a friend you know there was an incident in the fort maybe just a few weeks before this mm-hmm. where some Indians came into the fort. And one of them inspects a rifle in Captain Heald's quarters and fires it. And that was supposed to be the signal for an attack. And somehow something's not right or one of the pieces isn't there. And things get a little crazy, but nobody gets killed and there's no real incident. One of the other leaders stops that from happening.
1: Did Captain Heald... Have the discretion to hunker down if he wanted to. That's
0: I
2: don't think he thought he did. Okay.
0: The way the order written, it leans more on the side of following orders than it does on giving him much leeway or discretion. Okay. This is the military, after all. You, you do what you're told.
2: Yeah, but it's also the West, oh, and good point. I think there's an element of
1: an ask we have for to do this later. Right. That's a.
2: That's a. I think there's a real element of In, that as well. Intelligence on the ground. The community yeah. Around. I. I think there was room for Heald to have chosen So the to, worst to thing they stay. could do
1: would court-martial you, and if evidence came that you were doing the right thing, then, I mean, at least you're alive, right? Yeah.
2: Now, Heald is someone who worries about that. okay? And he's going to be worried because we know he's worried later about being court-martialed mm-hmm. for his actions in the subsequent years when Kinsey's looking to get help to get money for all the ammunition and um, alcohol that was destroyed and Heald is just unwilling to do that. Again, someone who's got that little pocket book, it says something to me about what he's all about. His character. Yeah. Yeah. And what's important to him.
0: Once they can't convince Captain Heald to stay in the fort, that night there's a very dramatic scene in Wabin where they're breaking open the heads of these barrels, mm-hmm. and they're gonna dump everything in the river. And There's a sally port, which is a small exit from the fort that's right by the river. Would have been looking probably right across where the Tribune Tower is today. Mm-hmm. And they say that John Kinsey went out that door to make sure the coast was clear, and goes down to the river, and sort of pretenses like he's washing up just to look around, and two Indians come out and grab him almost right wow. away. Wow. Now they recognize it's Kinsey. Yeah. So that was probably strategic that they sent him out, of course. Sure. <laughs> Wells, they might have taken away, right? Right. Uh, so there's nobody else that could have done that. Okay. And it could have gone very differently then. And so he says, no, no, we're they're just opening up you know, barrels of flour and, and other supplies, getting ready for this council the next day, because they probably would have given out a lot of food. So anyhow, he comes back into this fort, and they realize, oh, they can't dump it in the river but they have a well there so they throw the gunpowder and break up the guns they aren't going to take with them in there. The door's not sealed tightly so they end up just dumping the barrels there and that seeps down into the river. There was so much alcohol from this whiskey and rum probably that the river tasted like strong grog for days (laughs) afterwards.
1: A tall tale, I'm sure. It, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well,
0: but Juliet was a good tar- storyteller. She, she was a good
1: storyteller. Yeah. But yeah. you can understand that the fort would be petrified if the Indians got a hold of the alcohol and
0: got drunk. It would just stir things up. Yeah, right. 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 So in any event, they have a second council the next morning with William Wells. And Wells either clarifies or contradicts the earlier council that they're not going to get... Right the guns and the powder. So he's
1: Mr. Popularity, basically. Or the
0: liquor, yeah. right. right? Tough, and I've tough read, sell. And I've read some other accounts, and I can't place how strong those accounts were, but that there was maybe a, a personal rivalry between him and one of the other warriors. There were some words that were pretty aggressive back and forth between the two, which might explain why then the next day mm-hmm. that William Wells blackens his face when they ride out the fort the next day, which was sort of that sign of prepare for battle as a Native American, and you're willing to greet your death.
1: Now, who negotiates the
0: exit strategy?
1: Is that John Kinsey? Uh, I mean, Wells? Wells
0: is the leader of that Second Council.
2: Right.
1: Okay. And the agreement was they would be escorted by the Potawatomi down along the lake?
2: That they're going to have free Access. passage. Passage, okay. Yeah. Uh, now... They're going to also be accompanied by the militia, farmers and the families that are in the area. Not the Matib, the group of farmers like the Lees. About a dozen
0: men. Yeah. Probably John Kelso would have been part of that. Did they have to surrender their weapons? No, those men were armed by the fort, and they'd actually been practicing and training for a couple months since that April attack at Lees Farm in Hard or Bridgeport.
2: Right, they're very much a part of this, but their presence is also another lightning rod. And Wells is present. So it's not just Mm. soldiers, but it's also this group of militia and families.
0: Farmers that represent. Farmers
2: that represent. So to to my mind, I think that's... That's a good point. it's, It's another one of those things. If there'd been any way to peel those apart, that this may also have been different. The soldiers themselves were not the problem. The problem was...
0: Preserving the settlers. Preserving
2: the settlers, and then also wells.
0: Which, obviously, if the settlers had been left behind, they would have met the same fate yeah, it as was, Liberty right. White. And, uh,
2: exactly and, right. That was not a strategy yeah, that was really a- available to them. So right? if we could go in a time machine
1: to the morning of August 15th, would we see the American flag coming down off the flagpole and the military rituals mm-hmm. and then the... It was the, lined
0: up in the parade ground. The yeah. meeting
1: of the families coming to the fort, massing to the fort. Yeah. And then the final, I mean, who's leading them out of the fort? Is it the
0: commander? Mm-hmm. Yeah.
1: Okay, so, and now they're heading south.
0: They're so, heading south. There's two or three wagons, and there's some sick in addition to the children and whatever goods and... Thinks they can load into the wagons. So that are
1: for also there. for lack of uh, you know, there were no there was no Michigan Avenue, but basically they're going down, they're going
0: south along
2: the Lake we, Shore Trail, the, right, which right.
0: would later become Michigan Avenue, right. The lakefront was right there at that point. So
1: they're heading south, and how many people are moving in this parade? About a hundred, right? Yeah. And who's watching
0: this? Oh uh-huh. well, there's a. Uh, Five or six hundred Native Yeah, I was going to say, Americans there's a lot of people surrounding us. And are they on a horseback? Are they are they and walking? It's a, it's a mix. Yeah. It's, they've been hanging out there for days ever since Winnemack came through and told other natives uh, as he passed what right. was going to happen.
1: Is Wells or Heald, is he on a horse? Is he on? Yes. Because he's mounted?
0: I think there's about a dozen mounted folks. Okay. Wells is mounted. Captain Heald is mounted. Rebecca Heald is mounted. Yeah. I, I, I had kind of went through the list to try to figure it out. Oh, but
2: there yeah. was also
0: some horses stolen, though, at a couple different points. Right. In fact, the Lefant boys mm-hmm. I think he has five or six children. I think they're mostly sons. There's one or two daughters. And they steal about a dozen horses and go up to Milwaukee. Right. Okay. I don't know when, though. It's, it's unclear kind of when that happens, right? It's,
2: yeah, but it's before. It's, it's after yeah. April. Right.
0: And it might have been around the time when Jean Lalime. Gets killed, that might have been a trigger for them. But I'm just guessing. One of the other men was a blacksmith. Right. Who was of the Metis.
2: Right. And they'd come down, who'd been attracted to Fort Dearborn because he was getting contract work
0: as a blacksmith. So they go back.
2: Yeah. I mean, and the horses, some of these horses are coming from the Heald family. Well, it's the Wells family, and Heald has these horses Uh, that
0: they came with. They've come with her,
2: her father, Samuel Wells, in Kentucky. So
1: I went there
2: on August 15th. I'm here at
1: the site of Fort Dearborn at the corner of Michigan Avenue and Wacker Drive. I'm actually standing on markers that say site of Fort Dearborn. And people are just walking back and forth and right over the site of Fort Dearborn and pretty oblivious to it. And it was hot. Yeah. It was really hot. So I imagine the women are wearing the... It's a hot uh, day. The peasant dresses, the men are wearing the, the long sleeves, so it's a hot day.
0: With coats, that's the military probably style Probably wool,
1: wool coats or something like that. Sprays moving down Michigan Avenue, right. so to speak. Mm-hmm. And are there carts being pulled as yeah. well? And the children probably in... Two or
0: three or wagons. Wagons, and- okay. One was by a pair of horses, one was by a pair of oxen. There might have been a third, I'm not positive.
2: So back in Chicago at the settlement, you've still got most of the Matis families. So we know that Archangel Met and her sister Sache, Louise Boisson, her husband is a Peoria. They are watching in the house next door to where the Kinsies live. <laughs> Their grandfather is one of the Potawatomi warriors who's going to be a part of the attack. Another group that's watching is Eleanor Kinsey, and many members of the Kinsey family. This extended family household, household right? Two, at the, least
0: two black slaves,
2: right? There are enslaved people um, in this.
0: There's a couple of the French girls have been working for the household. I think they may be there. Right, sure, Victoria,
2: yeah. And Madeline Portier. Madeline. So they're on a big bateau, and they're off the river.
0: Kind of near the mouth, probably. N- or
2: further south, close to, in fact, where this is going to take place. And, so, a, and a
0: bateau, for those who don't know, is a large canoe. It was large enough that I know they had like a donkey.
2: Yeah, the, I mean, yeah, in, animals could you know, be know, in these boats, right? Maybe. And so the morning of the attack, they load in, and mm-hmm. Kinsey's going to go with the retreating column. His stepdaughter, Margaret Helm, is going to be a part of that group, and right. as is Rebecca. Helm's wife. Right. So you've got people watching. You've got the Pottawatomi warriors watching this, thinking about what their next move is going to be. You've got the Kinsey family out in the bateau. You've got people like Archangel Met who are sitting there watching this who are really not worried themselves personally, but they're in the end going to protect several people here. Griffin. Griffin, that's right. Sergeant
0: Griffin. Right. Griffin is not part of the battle. No. Isaac Van Voorhees had two horses, one to ride on and one carrying his supplies, all the medical equipment. One of the horses wandered off. And so Sergeant Griffin is sent off to go find that horse. (laughs) And he ends up over by the river. And at one point, is it, um, B? Yeah. B is from St. Joseph area and he tells the sergeant, go hide. Right. Do not go back to the fort. Right. And so he apparently either goes to one of the outbuildings of sort of the Kinsey area or somewhere back in there and hides. And then at a certain point, he crawls in a window, the people <clears throat> met and... Because he's actually gotten to the sun, I think fairly swarthy, and has he has a beard,
2: right? Is and the right? yeah, the old Mets dress him and
0: They dress him up, and he looks like a Frenchman. And they just tell him, "Do not say a word." <laughs> and the Indians later come in and investigate, right. looking for right anybody, for soldiers, right? And he passes as a Frenchman.
1: And everyone's tense.
2: Everybody's but, uh, tense. Yeah. yeah.
0: So they're they're hot. They're tense. They're nervous. And as they leave the fort, a lot of the Indian women and young boys rush into the fort and ransack it. Which normally, normally they would have waited to at least have the column out of sight, so yeah, they had right. plausible deniability. Sure. That's probably one bad indicator.
1: Where's the cannon, and did they bring it with them?
0: No, they had the, they, they had to the leave it. Cannon. Okay. So they're, they're walking down by about
1: 18th Street.
0: They stay on the lakefront because the sand, of course, near the water is harder packed. Okay. And the wagons are heavily loaded so that they find that is a better road mm-hmm. for them to go on. So now the
1: sand dunes are where, like...
0: About 18th Street and Prairie Avenue. With the dunes, I don't know how high they were, maybe 10, maybe 30 feet. Then rose up along the lakefront.
1: Right.
0: And that's where... They start to come into some of the the dunes along the shores. At that point, uh, and maybe approaching it, the Indians had split off and stayed up in the prairie, and their column had gone down.
2: And Harry Musham has mapped this. Um, Oh, fascinating. Yeah, so he's done 15-minute...
1: Oh, Wow, oh, that's uh, great. With
2: little X's. So, this is back in the 1940s. So, he's. Oh, um, to see that. Yeah, I'll have to send you the, um, the link there because it's a really interesting thing. Well, so, we'd love he's. To be able to post that up. Yeah, I know. That's exactly right. They're proceeding along. So, the Native Americans, the Potawatomi are up high. Yep.
1: So, this is about two miles south of the fort.
0: They say they went for an hour and a half. They left at nine o'clock, and the attack occurs about 10.30. Eight blocks to a mile in Chicago. Right,
2: it's they, about a mile and a half. They don't get half. very far. So they
0: don't okay. get very far. Now, okay. there wasn't. I,
2: d- ac- I just yeah.
0: There's a weird account that's at the <laughs> historical museum that they may have had a few incidents prior where there were some arrows shot at the oxen and at the horses on the wagon, and that one of the yokes on the wagons might have been broken and then had to be repaired, mm. and one of the horses shot and then somebody probably had to give up a horse to then help pull it. And the oxen broke away from the, the wagon and started to head back to the fort, head back home oh, basically. Boy. And so they had to be corralled back and reharnessed. And so it might explain why in an hour and a half they only got
2: they didn't get very far. There
0: now, of course, Captain Heald is not going to report any of this, nor is Helm, who also made a report, right? Because it would be an embarrassment for their leadership.
1: Yeah, right.
0: But apparently, a couple of brave young boys might have popped out and fired some arrows early and caused this disruption. And, of
1: course, the soldiers aren't going to react because they want a big picture here. They want to get out of here. Exactly. A couple of Indian braves that are just
0: being maybe mischievous or even vicious are not enough to, like, trouble themselves with.
1: Okay. And then, of course, at 18th Street, the attack begins. Mm -hmm. And the Indians come over the dunes. Were they hiding at the dunes?
0: There's not a lot of detail on
2: this. I go back to a painting. It's in the, the anteroom for the city council, so the oh, waiting okay. room for the city council. It's an image that's drawn from what little we know, which is mm-hmm. just from up on the dunes attacking down onto the troops.
0: And there's, it's not clear who fires the first shot. No, it's just... But there is a point, it's described in Wabin that William Wells is out front and waves his hat in the gesture that they're surrounded. Mm-hmm.
1: Okay.
0: And so, for some reason, they don't circle the wagons or or use those as defense. And the wagons and the uh, sort of the farmers and the militia are there, along with a few other officers. Isaac Van Voorhees, who's the surgeon's mate, and Ensign Ronan. And then the rest of the column is with Captain Heald and Lieutenant Helm. And they end up doing a charge up into the dunes to gain some high ground and push the Indians back which then flex around them and then come down on the beach and attacked. And in one of the wagons, there was a, what, a dozen children yeah. and one or two of the Indians just kind of goes berserk and killed the children yeah. that were in the just are an massacred. Right. And yeah. so that's where real, you know, the furor comes from of that kind of killing was really necessary in, in the eyes of the Americans. And William yeah. Wells is also, I think there defending those folks, and he goes to his death. Probably killed five or six or more Indians, or severely wounded them. Uh, so it's Ronan probably and some ensign... it's
1: probably just absolute chaos, right? And yeah. I mean, it's chaos, yeah, because people are coming from the left, they're coming from the right, they're coming from front, back. You don't know who's in charge. Yeah, I mean,
2: and Eleanor Kinsey and Archangel Met both recount just the horrific sounds what they're hearing would back up this idea of just how chaotic this was.
1: Yeah. Now, in your book, you touch upon this topic about massacre versus battle. Right. You know, things change over time and whatnot. How are we to interpret battle versus massacre?
2: So this goes back to the 1940s. Harry Musham, in his assessment of the events on August 15th, Suggests, and I think it's an important point, that massacre implies that it was indiscriminate killing. Mm-hmm. And I think we can say without any hesitation that this was not an indiscriminate killing. Okay, That this was a mm-hmm. battle within two wars, that this was a dangerous place to be, particularly for those American settlers, certainly for the soldiers. But the American settlers, I would say <laughs> that they are the people that... Stood out most clearly as Fire the, Yeah, that's exactly right. So I think Musham's point that this was not indiscriminate, it didn't happen on the timetable that Tecumseh had in mind, but this had been planned in advance, that the American troops were aware of the possibility of this.
0: Or had been declared. War had been declared. Was it June 29th?
2: Yeah. So by July 1st, we've got war declaration between the U.S. and Great Britain.
0: And then Chicago finds out about that probably just a week or so before the order from Hull comes through. So they know that they're in a state of war as well. Right.
2: So the war is there. So that's a piece of this. It's called a massacre right at the outset, and part of that is the initial accounts of what took place at Fort Dearborn, or just outside Fort Dearborn, was that everyone was killed. All of the retreating column was killed. Okay. I mean, and again, a lot of people die. Yeah. But there's also a significant number of people who are taken captive. And, and they're
0: and about information about them is unknown. So yeah. they're assumed basically gone or dead as well.
2: And many of them, most of them, are eventually found. Some of them never come back into an American orbit, but they're out in that world. So the term massacre gets applied that way. Massacre is a really useful word in August and September of 1812 from the standpoint of the American government beca- to rally the troops. Rally the troops. Mm-hmm. So I, I think there is, we have to be careful with the way we use that.
0: Well, it's like, remember the Alamo.
2: You got it. Ne- uh, nevertheless, uh, it's tremendous violence. Yeah. So there is no question about the amount of violence. Yeah. Simon Pokagan writes later about this. And Simon Pokagan's point is <laughs> when Indians win and when the Americans lose, it was a massacre. <laughs> Rather than winning a battle. Indians, you don't win yeah. a battle. There was a massacre. Right. So I think we need to back away from the word massacre. Right. That is not to say that there was not a tremendous amount of violence done this day. And a lot of people lost their lives. And there was a horrific violence. Atrocities. And it's ex- ex- yeah. Well,
0: including torture of some it, wounded soldiers it, it, that it, it, now were it, then killed in the next yeah. day or two.
2: Right. To Keep in mind, there's two kinds of warfare clashing here. Right. That's also a piece of this. But I still think to use the word massacre, to apply the word massacre here from the vantage point of 2019, 2020 is hugely problematic. We can no longer do that. Mm-hmm. And we can't just say, well, it was called a massacre in 1812, therefore it's a massacre. That's right. just, words have meaning And the meanings change. Over time. And what we know about events change over time. And I think we have to recognize that. This is not an apology for the violence. That word is just not a word that should be used And this
1: argument also takes place in the art world because in your book you talk about that sculpture that was in a public place. And then I think sensibilities changed. (laughs) And people said, well, maybe we should put that in a museum. And then... Sensibilities change again, and then they're like, maybe you should put it in a crate. Right. Because what, to our eyes, is, I don't know, over the top, was for a 19th century audience like a, a movie.
2: Right. It was exactly, and that statue, that sculpture, you know, when I first went to the History Museum, that was in the front entrance, right? I, I think mean, when that's. you walked in. Right. Yeah, right exactly there. right. It was lobby. right there in yeah. the lobby. And it's oh, dramatic because you have.
1: I forget the name of the Indian. Defend-
2: Black Black Partridge. Black Partridge um, defending. Saving Margaret Helm from yes. attack.
0: it raised at her head. You got yeah, it. And, and got then, then, um, there's a hand. Black Partridge, Black,
2: Black Partridge is kind of Protecting, He's right. He's kind of holding... Margaret Mar- Helm. Margaret, Margaret Holm.
1: Holm. right. And then I think there's a child.
2: It's hard to know where the like child fits in. But I mean, but not, yeah, this but, packs an emotional punch. Exactly right. That's the story of the heroic black partridge saving Margaret Helm from being scalped from a number of accounts that was done in 1892 that Pullman pays for. Our, Which was
1: at the site of 18th Street. Right, Prairie,
2: so it because right? his house was right there, right? right his right. house was right outside the door at Prairie and 18th Street's. That statue was created when we're talking about the closing of the frontier. Yes. You know, it's Sioux Indians that are used for models in Chicago for this. Sure, right. And then the juxtaposition with you get to the 1970s, that monument is out in the main lobby at Historical Society, and the American Indian movement starts a regular campaign that this has got to go. This kind of a representation is no longer... Useful. I don't know what to do with it. Well, it's similar to
0: where we are now with a lot of the Civil War stuff. Absolutely. Right? We move another fifty years later in history, and those things from the Confederate that, monuments. That yeah, yeah. that 100, 120 yeah. years ago, or I guess whatever was my math was my math terrible. But it's, but anyway, from the
2: well, and but a lot of those monuments are just a hundred. I mean, that, yeah, yeah, you, you they were, were built you were you yeah like you are exactly right to be thinking about that in terms of timing on that. The question of whether or not we should get rid of those monuments or whether we need to reinterpret them. I mean, right. I would really like to see this monument out there.
1: Oh, yeah, it's, with it's
2: discussion. very, very it's, dramatic right. within it's,
1: the right context.
2: That's exactly right. It's and also I,
0: huge and it's a very amazing piece of art. It, it is. Because it does capture that physical movement in a fixed statue. Yeah. It feels very active and very fresh. It is. It's very visceral when you walk in to see this statue.
1: These people in 1892 didn't have movies. They didn't have John Ford. No. Right.
2: But they had this.
1: This was was their film. And it told a story. Yeah.
2: Yeah.
1: And perhaps it doesn't work in our society. Right. But it did at that time.
2: Yeah.
1: And as a historian, you...
2: Right. I mean, you don't want to lose that representation of the past. I also understand why... You can't leave it sitting in the front entrance you, of the history museum. Has
1: anyone talked to them about that statue? Is,
2: oh a little bit? Is but there I think, any?
1: Can anyone see it uh, privately? Or uh, the,
2: actually, the city of Chicago has it now.
1: Oh well, then there's no hope. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just kidding. It's like
0: Raiders of the Lost Ark. Right? Yeah. It's in
2: that, it's in that crate. Somewhere.
0: It's in the crate <laughs> at the end of the. And, and God help us if the contract for that warehouse gets renegotiated and lost then who knows where it will end up right we'll never see it
2: yeah i've seen it
0: yes i've seen it yeah i was gonna say i mean and and
2: i've seen it in this crate
1: oh wow wow. okay
2: yeah i had someone who knew i was desperate to see it help me (laughs) that's pretty neat find that yeah
0: Prior to that, was it Black Partridge possibly too, or one of the warriors takes the gun from Kinsey and escorts him away from the battle, so that Kinsey's not embroiled in that.
2: Right. So Kinsey's going to be off on the side, and then the Heels are going to be taken captive. Yeah. Separately.
0: Both I, are wounded.
2: Both are wounded, and.
0: Three shots uh, Captain Heald receives, I think, like in the arm and the hip and then the leg or and, something like that. And, I mean,
2: he's going to suffer from those wounds for the rest of his life. So he's definitely... Because
0: they never re- pull the balls out. No. It's, he's, know, he's, the, they don't have the medicine to do that at that point.
2: really not in good shape.
1: So when I was a kid yeah. learning Chicago history, I yeah. always heard that William Wells' heart was cut out and eaten by <laughs> like the victorious because he it showed that he was a brave man. Yes. Now, is that true, or is that just uh, something? I, I mean, was that, fed there's as a kid. many,
0: several accounts. He he goes down fighting. He's taken down, and then after he's killed, and I think he also acknowledges his death and encourages the final blow to be dealt to kill him. He's you know he recognizes the end, and then one of the warriors carves out his chest and takes his heart out, and it was both. You know, it's sort of the spirit of the animal if you kill, yeah. you see, you know, there's usually sometimes in like the deer hunter, I think yeah. they did, did the scene where you, you take the heart out of the deer and they right. had the, the rookie hunter that killed it to take a slice of the heart. Sure, right. And that's the right. spirit of the heart that you may yeah. be uh, receive. And so even though they hated or had some amenity for, for Wells, they recognized him as a very brave yeah. and courageous and strong warrior. And so the idea was that if you take a piece of that, you may get some of the strength right. that, that he had or his, some yeah. of his spirit may become part of your spirit.
1: This is the ultimate compliment in their ways. Yeah,
0: and also fits very well with the Native Americans' approach of some terror in their attacks on enemies. So, you know, you may be a great warrior, but here's what's going to happen to you <laughs> if you really mess with us and we decide we're going to do something back. It, it was part of the culture, and, um, yeah, it's it's pretty dramatic.
2: So I think they're left with 25 soldiers? Something like that. And about a dozen women and children yeah. survive the battle. They're all going to be taken prisoner. They're, so they're going to be claimed by individual
0: groups within, groups
2: within the...
0: Five or 600 Indianists. That's
2: exactly there. right. And they come back to Chicago... And celebrate the victory yeah. that afternoon and night. And, and there's then, probably
0: some negotiation, too, about who gets which, you know, depending on the clout of the individual chiefs of the different tribes or, or factions.
2: Yeah, so, I mean, that's the other piece of this is that this isn't a unified group the Indians who are attacking are taking prisoners. They are individually and in their villages going to be taking prisoners back. And individual
0: tribes. That's exactly yeah.
2: right. Black Partridge is one of the Peoria area, Potawatomi. He's not going to fight for the Americans. He wants to claim, particularly Margaret Hellman, take some of these Kinsey related people, are, are going to be preserved and helped in one way or another. And then there's some negotiation to get. The Healds. So the Healds. Kinsey's, basically. Yeah, I was going to say, I think Kinsey's really behind getting both of them. They're not released, but they are claimed by Pottawatomie that will allow them to spend the night in the Kinsey house. And they're going to be taken as prisoners to St. Joseph, but they are under the protection of The the Kinsey's and the Pottawatomie that are allied with them.
0: Uh, like Black Partridge and a couple other...
2: Yeah, Black Partridge uh, the is theater. really critical to it, this story. Isn't that
0: ironic? Because Heald
1: was sort of scared of Kinsey, or what's the word, and and here Kinsey kind of...
0: I don't know that they were scared. Maybe is scared. not the wrong uh, they the right a, word. They had a relationship. I, I, I've never been able to pin that down from the letters. I mean, did you get a sense for that?
2: And my sense of this is that Heald made a decision <laughs> that he couldn't do without Kinsey. Yeah. And that that was, in fact, what saves his life. Yeah, right. It does not save the lives of all of his soldiers, which I think is another question altogether. But again, Kinsey is, it's personal allegiance. And he then sees the Healds as people that he is responsible for, as he's responsible for other people. And okay, now the story with the Healds is that Rebecca Heald has combs, right? And her combs in her hair, beautiful combs that come from her mother. They're known in Kentucky because they're just distinctive enough. And So, that,
0: you know, not like a pocket comb, but these are a comb that are for fashion. It's kind of an antiquity thing. Mm-hmm. We say two and a half, three inches wide with inch or inch and a half long prongs and, and you'd put it in your hair to hold it back or sure and
2: you can see it it's it's at, it's at the Chicago history and it's in the Chicago oh, it is. one of yes it is one there. of them is in the Chicago history Museum right oh, now it's man. it's on display so There's it's broken great prongs on it and broken it, prongs and all it's yeah. there so this wow. comb is taken by the first warrior who takes Rebecca Heald, yeah, I can't recall, and is. he's going to lose control of Rebecca Heald and she's going to be turned over again into the Care of the Kinsey allied Potawatomi, but
0: they give her a name too because right. she's so spirited, right? And because they want to take her horse, right? They want to the get one of these great horses that you talked about from the Wells Samuel Wells's Kentucky. The, 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 well, Kentucky's the, always been known for good horses, right? Yeah, right. and
2: so the comb is part of the celebration the night after the battle. And uh, it's worn by this warrior. But the warrior then goes back to his village further south in Illinois, and he trades this. So these items that were taken through, well, this comb makes its way to St. Louis within a fairly short order. And it's one like a week or two, I yeah, think. it's just not very very long at all. It's, it's just kind of
0: how much things traveled right. in those days.
2: So a friend of Samuel Wells is in St. Louis and sees these combs and recognizes them. And by that point, they also knew that there had been this battle, that they're already calling a massacre at right. Chicago. And he feared absolutely the worst, with good reason, that Rebecca was in fact dead. dead. So yeah. he buys the combs and he sends them back to Samuel, her oh. father in Kentucky. And her father in Kentucky then makes the same assumption that his daughter has died. But she's taken to St. Joseph. The Healds then get some medical attention at St. Joseph. And then the healed and the other officer that's with him, I'm trying to think of. You've, uh,
0: Griffin.
2: Griffin, that's right. Sergeant Griffin. Right.
0: Goes with Captain Heald and Alexander Robinson, right. who is a Native American. and Is he a, a mix?
2: Yeah, he's a mixed race.
0: Mixed race, yeah. But he's very much aligned with the Potawatomi right. at that point. But friends of, of Kinsey?
2: Yeah, I think he was working for Bailey. Okay. The, he's a Robinson, he's another but. Trader. Yeah, he's another trader. So taken by Alexander Robinson up to Mackinac and turned over to the British. And the British then will. Parole, Heald and Griffin. Griffin, that's right. The Healds then make out okay, but they make their way slowly but surely through British through Canada and back around and by the end of the year they're in Kentucky and wow, what a story. they're going to they're going to move eventually to Missouri, but they will be in Kentucky for the duration of the and, War of 1812.
0: Lieutenant Helm is then ransomed by Thomas Forsyth. Right. And then delivered back and they're reunited.
1: Well, and you should be a, a PR person for the Chicago History Museum because I want to go there.
2: to like Oh yeah, now no, you must you must I see it. It's one of my very favorite these. things. Is in the museum is that comb and realizing oh, the story amazing. of that comb.
1: Fantastic, yeah. Talk about antiques roadshow. I mean, that's that, right. That's quite a that's quite right. a story.
0: <laughs> <laughs> so then, everybody pretty much except for the French.
2: People Pretty much Chicago, everybody.
0: Everybody else is gone from Chicago. Everybody leaves for yeah. a bit.
2: It's a dangerous spot. Again, Robert Dixon comes through, a British, a trader. British trader who's again going through organizing warriors that are going to aid the British in this war. Of
0: 1812. In the War of
2: eighteen twelve, okay. and I, I think he tries to get the cannons. Is that right? Me. Yeah. That These are huge, yeah. heavy, yeah. heavy things. Yeah. The, so another piece of this that's interesting is, I mean, Tecumseh's off at Detroit. The British pull off a lot of the Native Americans that might have also been a part of this battle over Chicago to fight for the British. And they're going to be over in Detroit, and, and Manpac will be over there as well. So that war will proceed. The Kinseys will wind up over in Detroit eventually, and the Healds have made their way back to Kentucky other people who have been captured will either be ransomed back. So one of the big things that happens is the Indians and the traders they realize that they can make money mm-hmm. if they can find those captives. So a lot of the captives will wind up resurfacing over the next 18 months or so. There's more battles, right, after... Chicago, so it's really, Tecumseh is killed killed in 1813, so he's killed at the Battle of Thames just outside Detroit, so he's out of the picture, and so the nativist movement has lost its steam, and a treaty that comes in 1814, 1815, the Potawatomi and their allies that were willing to to play with the Americans have also lost um, at the end of the War of 1812 and 1816, The Native Americans in this region are basically on their heels. The nativists have lost big time. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And the American government negotiates a settlement with them in which they agree to all of the previous land sessions and... That's a good chunk of all of this land. By 1816, 1817, as we said, so you've got the steamboat and you've got the Erie Canal, and lots of people, are, these Americans are going to start coming in and they're going to start demanding more cessions. So you're going to get more treaties. So you get the Treaty of St. Louis and then Chicago in, in 1821, and then a second Chicago Treaty after the Black Hawk War in 1833. And the Black Hawk War, you can make an argument, is the very last piece of this warring that's taking place in that the That was 1832. 1832 is the Black Hawk and War. And then the
1: next year, Chicago is incorporated as a Yeah, town. 1833,
2: Chicago's incorporated as a town. There's this treaty that brings 6,000 Potawatomi and their allies to Chicago in the spring of 1833, and then you get the first big wave of Eastern speculators in real estate.
1: Historians <laughs>
2: What John Kinsey really was hoping for was this world where the Potawatomi and their allies could live alongside of these Euro-Americans who are trading and Wanted to be a part of this Indian country mm-hmm. that was multi-ethnic and sort of mixed community, mixed community, and but not at all the model of that Thomas Jefferson has for the West of the
0: East Coast of the East yeah.
2: Coast, right? Of laying out land sessions and then laying uh, surveying the land and selling that land, which mm-hmm. is the vision that comes from the East Coast. That's exactly right. And 1812 is really the last time. The land isn't going to be surveyed and sold as real estate. If you're being honest, it was probably way before that, but it wasn't clear to people on the ground until after 1812.
1: Yeah. Well, you need the foundational. You got to read Rising Up from Indian Country by Ann Durkin Keating. Oh my gosh. Uh, yes. <laughs> well, I think, if anything, go to the History Museum and see the comb.
2: Oh, the comb is, there's an argument that the comb. Can tell this story um, as well or better than that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you. you.
1: Thank you for
0: talking. Uh, It's really been a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. Great. Audio editing by Christopher Lynch and Patrick McBriarty at the Waveland Island Studios. And special thanks to Jill Hogginson for the idea and branding assistance and Nate Kennedy. For technical support and specking our audio equipment. Thank you for listening to the Windy City Historians Podcast.